Um, ever since that very first year, uh, I have been podcasting this class. Um, one of the original students asked me to do that after a couple weeks. And so this will be available online if you want to listen to it again, which who knows. Uh, but um, Or if you know you want to go back and hear something, maybe you didn't quite catch it or whatever, it's going to be out there. Uh, it's at my website, PastorJoshHawkins.com. Um, just FYI. Plus, know that everything you say is being recorded for quality assurance purposes. And uh, that's a joke, my friends. That was, that was, that was good. Wow, these guys are kind of slow, aren't they? I mean, everything you say is being recorded. <laughs> um, maybe we should pray again. You know what? You know what we need to do. This is what we need to do. It's everybody needs to stand up. Everybody needs to stand up. Everybody needs to stretch. Okay. The mind can only contain what the backside can sustain. So. Let's just stretch a little bit, get the blood flowing a wee bit, and then you can sit down again. All right. Okay, so here we are. We are uh, going to be going through the book of Romans. Um, This book... I probably have spent more time in the book of Romans than I have any other portion of scripture. The only one that might come close is Song of Solomon. I've spent a lot of time in Song of Solomon also. but um, Which, who knows, we might end up doing that again this year. Last year, last year we spent five or six weeks in Song of Solomon. And uh, that was fun, wasn't it? That was, that was fun. And, uh, and who knows, we might end up there again. If we got we got to plow through Romans first, but... Uh, but, uh, yeah, if we have time at the end of the year, maybe we'll go back there. Um, but uh, Romans is, is my favorite book. And I've spent a ton of time in this book. And it's because this, this, book, this book is a mountain range. That's what this book is. This book is an unbelievable... It's the Himalayas. Okay, that's what it is. It is, it, it is the highest peaks of scripture are in this book. There's no question about that. The, the topmost, the, the, the ones that we look at and we're like, I don't know if I can climb that without oxygen. Okay, that's, that, th- that, those are the truths of this book. Okay, this book has stuff in it that people have been arguing about for 2,000 years. Okay, and, and good, let's get into it. Okay, let's talk about it. Okay, we're gonna we're gonna get into predestination. We're gonna get into we're gonna get into the role of Israel. We're gonna get into lots of fun stuff that we're gonna have to slog it out a little bit. And and your little well, my pastor told me means this is not gonna be good enough. Okay, because I'm not interested in what you've heard from someone else, and I'm not interested in what you hear from me. I want you to hear from God about these things. I want you to wrestle with them. I want you to get in the nitty-gritty of the scripture and say, "Yeah, teach me Jesus." You know? And that way when you know when you walk out of the book of Romans on the other side, number one you'll be completely different. 
because there's stuff that's going to come out of this that's going to just kick you in the spiritual balls. I mean, it's going to happen. You just need to know that. Yes, even women have spiritual balls because we are all the sons of God. The sons, the, the yes, that's right. We're the, we're, but, but guys, you're the bride of Christ. So, <clears throat> right. So anyway, but it will, it's going to mess with your head and you're going to read stuff in the book of Romans and be like, I don't know what to do with that. And I've had students more than once be like, I don't want to be in your class anymore. And I've had people, I'm serious. And I've had people more than once. So if any of you are thinking of one particular person, there's been more than one. Okay, this has happened more than once. I had one student that brought a knife with him to Sunday school because he wanted to hurt me. Yes, I'm not joking. Because stuff I was teaching out of this book was so messing with his worldview that he hated me. And that week, the Holy Spirit just slammed this kid, totally turned his world around, and then, like, you know, he was one of my best good friends for a long time after that. Okay? <laughs> Thankfully. You know, I don't have a scar to show you. Or anything. Stab <laughs> I've never been stabbed. Uh, I, you know, I'm waiting, though. I mean, who knows? It might happen. Uh, <laughs> I'd be okay with it, you know? I would love, you know, to see this wound right here. That's right. That came from Bible teaching. Yes. <laughs> It's like a sharper than a two-edged sword, my friends. Um, but, uh, but yes, this, so this book, it's going to rattle our cages. It's going to rattle my cage. And I've spent, I've, I've spent a lot of time in the book of Romans, and I still find stuff that I'm just like, you know, I just can't. Like, what the heck? Oh, my gosh, how come I've never seen that before? And the Lord's going, because, you know, you're an idiot. And... <laughs> But no, I mean, haven't you ever read a scripture that you read a hundred times and all of a sudden something's just sticking out of it that you're like, where did that come from? Did you put extra words in there? No, it's just that you're finally in a place where you can see what's been right in front of your face the whole time. Well, that's, that's what I want to have happen in this class. So I'm excited. But before we jump in and talk anything, before we really get going, okay, I, I need to give you some understanding of why this letter was written. It was a letter. Was written by the Apostle Paul. Uh, was probably dictated. The Apostle Paul is known. We we know for a fact that he had terrible eyesight. Um, uh, possibly because of a disease that had kind of like landed in his eyes, and so he he had very he had difficulty writing. So he would often dictate his letters to someone else who would, who would be writing them down. Which I always, whenever I say that, I think of Monty Python. You guys are... Perhaps, he was, perhaps he was dictating. You know what I'm talking about? They're in the cave. Uh, you know, it's like... It's like, in the castle... Uh, he must have died while carving it. He wouldn't have bothered to carve out... Uh, he would have just said it. Perhaps he was dictating. Oh, shut up. Anyway... Every time. <laughs> so <laughs> he wrote this letter and he wrote it in the middle of his third missionary journey when he was in Corinth and he was on his way back to Jerusalem. Now, if you know anything about Paul's missionary journeys, which you should, they're very important. Um, you are only a Christian because Paul took his missionary journeys. That's the truth. If he had not spread the gospel to the Gentiles, all over the Roman Empire, including the people he was sending this letter to, 
the truth, we probably would not be followers of Christ right now. It's just reality. So those he was on his third and final missionary journey. Some people think he might have had a fourth one, but there's only three that we know for sure about. And this uh, this part of his journey is chronicled in Acts chapter 20. We're not going to go there, but he was in Corinth, which was one of the cities that kind of really grew up at the end of his ministry rather than at the beginning. But Corinth, and he's on his way back to Jerusalem. He's taking an offering back to Jerusalem because they are uh, experiencing a famine or about to experience a famine. It's been prophesied. So all of the churches in the rest of the world took an offering to send back to Jerusalem to support the Christians who were there. And Paul is on his way back there. And when he gets there, he will be captured. He will be put in prison. He will end up in Rome and he will be, his head will be removed from his body. Okay. Um, so this is near the end of his, of his ministry. He's writing this letter. Okay. And he writes, he writes, it says, uh, he wrote it to those called by God to be saints. Okay, so he's talking about all of the followers of Jesus who were in Rome. Now, there were people in Rome that Paul had ministered to. But there's a whole bunch more people in Rome that Paul has never met because Paul has not preached the gospel in Rome before this point. He has not been to Rome to preach the gospel. He may have visited before when he was not a Christian, but he has not been to Rome since he's been saved. And he's never preached the gospel there. But there are believers there. And he knows about that, and he probably knows about that because believers that he did minister to have gone to Rome, and they are sending correspondence back to Paul saying, hey, there are Christians here. They don't have good teaching. Can you give us a word for them? And so Paul writes this letter. Um, he wrote it to Rome at this time because uh, he had another associate that was going there, a, young, a woman named Phoebe, okay, who was going there who was going to carry his letter for him. They didn't have FedEx they didn't have even the Pony Express. There was no mail. There was no mail system in Rome. Okay, you you found out. Hey, are you headed to Rome sometime soon? Will you take this letter with you? Thanks. That's how it worked. Okay, and he had Phoebe was going to Rome, and so he handed her this letter to take to the church and the believers in Rome for a couple reasons. Number one, to announce his plans to visit, to let them know I am coming to you as soon as I can. Number two, to make a full theological treatise on the gospel that Paul preached so they'd be able to discuss it when he arrived. In other words, this is like, hey, when I get there, this is what we're going to talk about. So here's a little, you know, here's a little pamphlet about the gospel. Discuss, right? We wanted them to have some kind of foundation before he arrived so that he could have a conversation with them about it. And also, there seems to be in this book, uh, he is talking to two crowds. He's talking to Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. And in Rome, you've got both groups and they're not making nice with each other. They don't really see each other as brothers. It's There's a little bit of friction there. I don't know. We don't know if they were meeting together. They probably were. But the Jews thought themselves better than the Gentiles, and the Gentiles thought the Jews were jerks. Okay, so um, it's just the way it was. And so Paul is writing, that's another part of this letter, is to let them know, hey, guess what, guys? You're one. There's no difference between a Jewish Christian and a Gentile Christian. You're all one. Okay, so that's why he was doing, that's why he was writing these letters. Okay, so are we ready to jump in? You guys are so quiet. 
really, it's unnerving. It's a little, it's strange. Okay, that's the boring part over with, all right? But we have to understand the context of the scriptures that we read. You need to know who it was being written to. I know it's, I don't care about that. Can we just get it? No, you need to know. Because if you don't know who it was being written to, then you can easily misinterpret what's being written. You need to know what Paul meant when he originally wrote it, because that's what it still means. Does that make sense? And that's true all through Scripture. In every part of Scripture, you need to know why the person who wrote it wrote it, who they wrote it to, and what they actually meant. That's what we're trying to get down to. We're trying to boil Scripture down to what was meant by the original author. That process is something called exegesis. Okay? That's a that's your big theological word for the day. Everyone say it with me. Exegesis. Okay? It's spelled with a G, not a J, but other than that, E-X-I-G-E-S-U-S. Exegesis. And that process is the process of, of figuring out what this scripture meant to the people that wrote it and originally read it. That's what exegesis means. My theology teacher in college, who was fond of terrible puns, used to say, we do exegesis so we don't get extra Jesus. <laughs> I like that one. You would. Um, <clears throat> it's terrible, but I remember it. So he, it accomplished what he was trying to. The point is, if you take scripture out of context, you can twist it and make it mean anything you want. You heard the story about the guy that was doing the old-fashioned open my Bible and put my finger down technique of studying scripture. He opened his Bible, put his finger down, and said, and Judas hung himself in the, in the potter's field. And he was like, whoa, what are you saying to me, God? And then he closed his Bible and opened it again and put his finger down and said, go ye and do likewise. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's not how we study scripture, okay? Because it can, it can totally mess with our heads when we don't pay attention to the original meaning of the text. Okay? We've got to pay attention. What did it mean? We need to read the scriptures that come before it. We need to read the scriptures that come after it. We need to pay attention to what's being said and why it's being said. One of my favorites is Jeremiah 29 11. I love that verse. It's a great verse. How many of you know that verse? That's an awesome verse. You're probably all misinterpreting it. Just FYI. That chapter, Jeremiah 29, it's powerful. And you're not mostly misinterpreting it. But you need to understand that chapter was all about telling the Israelites, I know you've been exiled from your homeland, that you're in a place of great discomfort, a place that's very difficult for you. But I want you to engage in the life of the people that I put you among. Build houses, marry, you know, you know, have weddings, have children, build businesses, do everything you can to prosper the city in which you live now. For I know the plans that I have for you, says the Lord. Does that verse sound different now? Okay. Now, I think it's more powerful in that setting. Because we always love to listen to it and say, God knows the plan he has for me, the plans to give me a hope and a future. But the Lord is saying, look, I know life sucks right now. 
but work to make your life and the life of everyone around you better. Be light in the midst of darkness because I'm going to bless you. That's awesome. Doesn't that give a more more richness to that? It doesn't steal from, from what it told you in the first place, but because you know the context now, doesn't that mean something more? It does to me. I love that verse, but I love it even more when I know the verses that come before it and after it. We need context to understand Scripture correctly. Okay, let's actually start reading Romans. All right, verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus. Okay, this is, this is the, the, the you know, Roman equivalent of, you know, to whom it may concern, dear, whatever. You know what I'm talking about, okay? That's, we sign our letters at the bottom of the letter. Sincerely. Paul, right? That's how we, but in, in this day, they signed them at the front. And there's a whole lot of reasons for that. But the, the biggest one was, it was a scroll. So you pull the top part off and say, oh, it's from Paul. <laughs> you don't want to be like rolling, 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 rolling. Oh, it's from Paul. No, I mean, it's just easier. Okay, so he says that first of all. And I, so he's beginning with his credentials. He's beginning by telling them exactly who he is. Remember, they've never met him before. They may have heard of him, um, but they hadn't met him. And this was, it was his first impression with them. Both Jew and Greek, he wants them to know exactly who he is. And, and how, you know, how he considers his ministry, okay? He wants them to know. So the first thing he says is, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus. That's how he introduces himself. Hi, I'm a slave. That's what this word means. It's doulos, means slave, bondservant. That's a specific kind of slave. But still, slave. Would you introduce yourself as a slave? I mean, I don't know that I would <laughs> if I was, you know. The thing is, slaves in this time wore a specific kind of earring. So if you met them, you knew they were slaves. And I, I have always wondered if Paul wore one. Um, because he introduces himself as, the bond, as a bondservant many times. So I wonder if he wore one. And people would meet like that was his, his like conversation starter with people. <laughs> you know, he walks up to somebody and he's like, "Hi," and they're like, "Oh, you, you're a bond servant." You know, who, who do you serve? Well, let me tell you. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, that's just my guess. I'm just wondering about that. Okay, that's <laughs> it's like this. You know, this is I, how many of you know what this is. Yes. It's my Revive Indiana bracelet. I wear it all the time. In fact, I most of the time forget I even have it on. Um, truthfully, I don't even feel it anymore. But, but uh, you know, I love beginning conversations with people this way. Oh, what does your bracelet mean? Well, I'm happy to explain it to you. Let me pull out this little Bible. Okay. I, I don't know. I don't know that that's... I'm totally just guessing. But who knows? Okay. But... They don't know him. So he's introducing himself as a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Now, this particular kind of slave was a very, uh, a very specific kind of slave. One, they were voluntarily slaves. Okay, They may not have begun that way. Most of the time, people entered into slavery during this time. Either they were captives that were caught like during a war. Okay, So some kind of army comes in, and they 
you know, catch all the people in the town and then they sell them as slaves, okay? Or they take them as slaves. Or it was because you were in debt and you couldn't pay it. And when you were in debt to someone and you couldn't pay them back, you could sell them yourself. But you would do it, usually it was for a certain amount of time. In the Jewish context, it was often about seven years because they would, you know, it's that whole Sabbath year thing that was a part of the Jewish calendar. So it was about, often in the Jewish context, it was about seven years. And they would be a, they'd be a servant for seven years. Well, so a lot can happen in seven years. And if you've sold yourself into slavery and you've been a slave with this person for seven years and you end up marrying one of their slaves, or you end up getting kind of promoted among the ranks of, rank of slaves and now you're kind of in charge of the whole household and you really like your job. Or if your master was just an awesome guy that you really appreciate and love and you know what, I wouldn't mind working for you for the rest of my life. Then when your debt is paid off, you can go to them and they'll say to you, you know, they'll be like, okay, your debt's paid off, you can go. And, but you had this option of becoming a bond slave. Where you could say, I don't want to go. I love you. I love this place. I love my wife who is still your slave. Okay, any of those would, you know. And you would ask to be bonded to his house forever. So he would take you to the door frame of his home. And he would take an awl. Do you know what an awl is? And it, okay, it's it's a pointy object that that you use to like make holes in wood so that you can put, you know, nails through, etc. Screws, you know, that kind of thing. Okay, they would take that and they would pierce the ear of the bond slave with the awl, symbolically joining them to the house. Does that make sense? It was usually up here. Bang, okay, you are now, you know, and then they would wear that earring to show that they were a bond slave. Okay, it gave them a higher status than just, than, than, you know, the lower rank of slave. And it showed that he is in voluntary servanthood, servitude to this family for the rest of his life. So when Paul introduces himself as a bond slave of Christ, he is saying, I have sold myself to Jesus forever. I am his bond slave. When I was younger, I seriously thought about piercing my ear like that just to have that as like a conversation thing and just as a reminder for myself that I'm a bond slave of Christ, that I am connected to his household forever. These bond slaves were almost considered family. I mean, they were, they were close. They were trusted. They were relied upon. They were given access to the finances of the house. They, they ran the joint. I mean, that's, that's what they did. And the Apostle Paul introduces himself as a bond slave of Christ Jesus. He is chosen out of love to be bonded to Christ in servitude forever. That's pretty great, right? I mean, you would say, I kind of, I, I want to be that. I mean, you're sitting in this room, so it kind of shows a little bit, maybe, that that's what you want to be. But he says a bondservant, so, but he's not just anybody's bondservant. He's the bondservant of Christ Jesus. And whose slave you are makes all the difference in the world. I don't know if you understand that. But well, let's talk about this, about the name of Jesus. He calls him Christ Jesus. Now, something you need to understand. Christ is not Jesus' last name. I say that, you know, 
and and you know people are like huh of course it's not well there might have been somebody in here that thought it was but that that wasn't his last name his last name would have been of nazareth or <laughs> son of joseph those are the last names people had back then they didn't have they didn't have other wow. last names okay <laughs> It was well that they called him Jesus of Nazareth, did they not? You know, yeah, they did. I mean, Josh of Fort Wayne. <laughs> Correct. Actually, I would probably be Josh, son of Ron. Oh, okay. <laughs> son of Ron. <laughs> Which my last name actually is. My last name is Hawkins. Okay, and the truth is that last name probably started with Hawkins' son because it was so and so son of Hawkins. Okay, and so. And it's just gotten, you know, abbreviated over the years. And it's just Hawkins. Okay, so that, that's kind of where people didn't really have last names. Uh, you know, bad. there's still places in the world where people don't have last names. So they would either be named for the, like, the trade they were in, like Baker. Okay, Mr. Baker. Well, what do you think they did? <laughs> they baked things. They did. And people would pass their, pass... Down the family line, okay? Brewer. Coffee. They brew things. Coffee. coffee. <laughs> <laughs> they drink a lot of coffee. Beer. Uh, Beer. <laughs> Coffee's new. Coffee, the coffee, coffee's only been, been an, an international thing for just a couple hundred years. It's not even that long ago. I know. Can you imagine life before coffee? That's why they needed so much booze. Okay. That's why they needed so much booze. <laughs> they didn't have coffee. Possibly. Not anymore, though. Anyway, so Christ is not Jesus' last name, but it is his title. It's like doctor or president or reverend. It's my title. I hate it, but that's my title. It was his title, okay? And it had a very specific meaning. Christ in Greek means anointed one. Anointed one. Someone on whom oil has been poured. That's what it means, okay? Anointed one. Now, um, the Greeks had that title, but it really comes from the Jewish Messiah, Mashiach, which also means anointed one. Okay, so it's just an interpretation of the word from Messiah to uh, Christ. They mean the same thing. And the idea is, now oh, what you might not understand is that there were lots of Messiahs, lots of anointed ones. David was Messiah. Saul was Messiah. Saul, the King Saul, was Messiah. All of the kings of Israel were Messiah. They were anointed ones. Because when they were made king, they were anointed with oil by the priest or by the prophet or whatever. Remember when Samuel went to uh, Jesse's house, David's dad's house, and he looks at all the sons and he says, oh, I can't take a call right now. I need to like put this in like do not disturb or something. How do I do that? Let's see. It's just going to ring again, and it's going to drive me crazy. No. Well, it's my church number. Anyway, I'm going to have to figure out how to fix that, because that's not cool. How do I do that? Do you guys, who, who's a Mac person in here? This is all going on the recording right now. Mm-hmm. Okay, do not disturb is now on. Got it. Okay. 
<laughs> the other day I was preaching on a Sunday morning and my microphone, I hate those over the mouth, over the ear microphones. They drive me crazy because they get in my beard and then you hear like <laughs> the whole time. And so like Steve Vetterspiel here was like, well, you should just shave a spot right there. And I was like, no, no, <laughs> that's not happening. So anyway, but, but so at, at home I use a lapel. It's right here. That way I still don't have to have a hand holding. And I can be expressive. My hands. And uh and and but it was like caught in my shirt. So I, every time I would move it was like <laughs> everywhere it was, just, it was driving me nuts and all that ended up on the sermon uh audio that went online. That was great. <laughs> anyway. Um where was I? Oh yeah, yeah, Christ. Okay. He is uh that's his it's so there were lots of messiahs all through history, okay? And anybody that had been anointed by God. Do you remember David in his, when he was um, uh, being chased by King Saul and he said, I will not touch the Lord's anointed? Do you, know, do you remember that, that, part, that part of the story? Uh, and he was saying, I will not touch the messiah. That's what he was saying. I will not touch the messiah because that's what the word means. It means anointed. So... There were lots of messiahs, but as things as things progressed in the nation of Israel, as things moved forward in that nation, then Messiah, anointed one, came to be an apocalyptic term. Came to be a term for the one who would come to set us free from Rome, the prophesied king of kings, okay? The 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 one who would come who would establish the throne of David forever. Okay, so I'm much more along the lines of the way we think of the word Messiah now. Is everybody with me? Paul is unashamedly declaring that Jesus is the apocalyptic heir to the throne of David, Messiah. That he is the one. Now Jesus is he died, and yes, he rose from the dead. Most people didn't see that though. And he's not around now. But Paul is still saying, both to the Jew and to the Greek in Rome, this is the king of all kings who will establish the throne of Israel over the earth forever. That's what he just said when he said Christ Jesus. Messiah Jesus. Now we've also, because of Jesus, kind of folded in this idea of savior of the world. When we talk about Messiah, because people talk about their Messiah complex. Oh, you know, you're just trying to save him. And so, you know, are you with me on that? Okay. Yeah. But that was not present at the time he wrote this. Christ meant anointed king, authoritative figure, given authority by God to rule. That's what Christ meant. Now, the truth is, Paul could have been thrown in prison just for writing that down on a piece of paper because there was no authority other than Caesar. You didn't see why Christians were like gone after by the Roman Empire? Because they're walking around saying, Jesus is the guy who's going to take over the world and destroy the Roman Empire. Woo! <laughs> you think Caesar was excited about that? No, I'm, I'm telling you right now, he wasn't. He was not excited about that. That's why Paul ended up getting killed, because he was calling Jesus the Christ. Just want you to know that. So he's, 
So Messiah, the last day's figure that would rescue Israel and raise them up to take over the world. Jesus is that person. He was then, he is now. The problem was that most of Jesus' disciples, now Paul understood a little better now, and so did the other disciples. But when they were walking around with Jesus, they were just waiting for him to say, okay, guys, get your swords out. We're going to take over the Roman Empire. They believed Jesus was going to do it right then. That he was going to start a rebellion against Rome, that they was going to set Israel free, and then Israel was going to rise up as some kind of military power in the region and take over the Roman Empire. That's what they thought Jesus was doing. That's why they hardly understood anything that he tried to say to them, because that was the context that they saw him in. Jesus is going to be this military leader who's going to rise up in our midst, who's going to crush the Roman Empire and make Israel the greatest nation in the world. That is what they thought. They honestly thought Jesus was going to do that. And Jesus was constantly, the entire time he was with them, going, it's not like that, it's like this. I am going to overthrow the world system, but I'm not going to do it militarily, at least not yet. I believe with all my heart that a day is coming. When there will be a holy military invasion on the planet where Jesus will be the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, riding on the white horse, splitting the sky, landing on the Mount of Olives, defeating Antichrist, and taking over the planet. That day is coming. It's coming very soon. Sooner than we think. But it's not yet. And it wasn't yet back then. But that doesn't mean he's not Christ. So he's Christ and he is Jesus, okay? Called as an, called as an apostle. We're, we're almost halfway through the first verse, guys. Aren't you excited? I don't hear, I don't feel the energy in the room. I don't know what's going on. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle. So he's the bondslave of Jesus, and his master has given him a task. He has been called to be an apostle. What does apostle mean? Anybody? I want to hear from you. Come on. Speak up. Apostle. Go ahead. Like the person that goes out and like builds churches, like rises them up and like teaches them. That is how they operated. Yes. But the word simply means sent one. That's all it means. But you're absolutely right. In the Christian context, the apostolic anointing and, and office, they're a pastor to pastors. They're the beginner of new things. A lot of time, most of the missionaries we send out on the mission field are apostles. We don't realize that. We don't necessarily call them that because in our context, it would feel like we were like exalting them over other pastors. Like, they're in charge now. That's not, no, that's not what it's about. But... Um, but they're the sent ones. That's what the word apostle means. So he's been called to be sent. That's what he's supposed to do. Jesus was giving him this, uh, this task. Jesus called the original 12 to their earthly, during his earthly ministry. And Judas is no longer a part, obviously. James has been killed at this point. There may be others who have died before this, but I don't really know. Okay, 
Paul is an apostle on the same level with Peter, James, John, all those guys. He's been called by the risen Christ. See, they were all called while Jesus was in normal human non-resurrected form on the earth. Everybody, all the other apostles were. Paul, on the other hand, was not called until after Jesus had died and risen from the dead. And you know the story. He was called on the road to Damascus. Jesus showed up, you know. Oh, ah, right? And, and who are you? I'm Jesus. And I'm calling you. Okay, so that's what happened. This is many years later. In fact, his name back then was Saul, not Paul. But, and we can see, it, it, this is actually in uh, Acts chapter, well, we'll get there in a second. But he's a sent one. He's called to go. He carries authority and responsibility. Authority in the, authority in the kingdom cannot be parted from responsibility and servitude. We've got to understand this. What did Jesus say? The greatest in the kingdom is the Okay, there's another phrase I'm looking for. Servant of all. Greatest in the kingdom is the servant of all. Please understand this. I know that some of you are in this room and you're a part of Master's Commission because you feel that God has called you to a place of ministry. Right? That's awesome. That's awesome. Understand, the more authority you gain, the more of a servant you need to be. Okay, we have Apostle Paul here. He wrote more of the New Testament than anyone else. Got more people saved than probably any other person in his time. Okay, went further in the cause of the gospel than anyone. Started churches all over the world that, that the, the Romans themselves said, this guy goes into a city and turns it upside down. Okay, that's who this man was. He had an anointing on him that was insane. One, you know, we know things like, you know, he was out working in a field with, you know, and somebody said, hey, there's a sick person. And he just kind of wipes his face with a handkerchief and says, here, take this. They took the hanky to the person and they were healed. Okay, that's the kind of anointing this man was walking under. He raised multiple people from the dead. He himself was raised from the dead after being stoned to death. Okay. <laughs> This is the kind of guy Paul was. He walked into a city. They hated him. They carried him out to the outside of the city. They stoned him until he was dead. The Christians gathered around and prayed for him. He rose from the dead, shook the stones off, walked back into the city. <laughs> this guy is insane. And he's saying, I'm just a, I'm just a non-slave. I'm just a, I'm a slave. That's all. I'm a slave of Jesus. Humility is the road to authority. Okay? Paul is an amazing example of this. Humility is how the lower we go in our opinion of ourselves, in our and in in how great we think we are, the more Jesus can use us. Okay? So those of you that have a, a, a sense that God is calling you into ministry, do me a favor right now and disabuse yourself of the idea that God is lucky to have you on his team. Okay? Because that's just not true. The only reason you're here and the only reason you're called is because God is incredibly merciful, patient, and loving. 
He could do all of this way better without you, but he refuses to. Don't ask me why. <laughs> yeah, I say I ask the Lord all the time. Well, exactly why did you do? Th- you ask me to do this? I suck. Okay, that's just the truth. I I am not good at a lot of things that I should be really good at, and I'm just and I'm and you know I've got a bad I've got a temper. You guys probably won't ever see it, but I really I've got a temper, you know, and and I'm not I'm a broken, messed up individual. It's just, it's just I'm a human being, just like anybody else. And I feel like many times I feel like I get more in the way of God's move than I am the conduit for God's move. But He's still like, I want you here. It's just like you don't make any sense. Oh, but I'm enjoying myself, so I'm just gonna stay. Tell you what, it's a real thing. My daughter, <laughs> she got my temper and my wife's stubbornness. It's Great unbelievable. And she's ginger too. Oh, well, my wife's a ginger too, so it's like, you know, it's, it's, it's something to behold. We got, we, we had some issues this morning. I'll tell you that right now. Um, she does not enjoy getting up at 645 to get ready for school. And yeah. I know things are going to go bad when she refuses to use words. She's five. And when she like comes downstairs and I'm, what, what do you want for breakfast? And she's like, Ugh. that's when it's going to be a bad day. I just automatically know. Oh, crap. She's not speaking. The animal came down. Anyway. Someday she's going to listen to this and be like, oh, I can't believe you, Dad. <laughs> so he's called as an apostle and he's set apart for the gospel of god okay this word set apart this same thing as consecrated anybody heard that word consecrated okay and it means that you that you are kept for a specific purpose my favorite way to illustrate this point is to talk about leftovers okay because when i go to a restaurant Okay, and I bring home a doggy bag. Okay, Mo- most of the time I'm like, I don't care. Any, you know, anybody can eat them. My 14 year old is always, whenever like he gets home from school, he's like, "Did you go to a restaurant today?" And he gets into the and he looks for my leftovers. And most of the time, I'm completely fine with that. But if I go someplace and I really enjoy the food, and I have leftovers, for instance, I went to Biagi's last Friday for lunch. I got my favorite, Farfalle Alfredo. I love it. And I only ate half of it because I wanted to save it for another meal. And so when I got home, I wrote my name on the leftovers. Okay? Dad, they, I have just consecrated those leftovers. <laughs> they are set apart for my use and no one else's. And if anyone touches them other than me, they will suffer death. <laughs> it is known in my family that if my name is on the leftovers, that they shall not be touched. It's, it's known. It's understood. My children, oh, it's his dad. Don't eat it. Right? They get that. Okay? That's because I've consecrated them for myself. I've set them apart for me and me only. Okay? Paul has had the name of, of God written on his heart. For a specific purpose, for the gospel of God. 
He's been set apart. Now, this actually happened. We know when this happened. It happened in Acts chapter 13, verse 2, which says, While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart, there are those words again, for me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I have called them. So we know the exact moment that Paul is referring to, because Dr. Luke wrote it down for us in the book of Acts. Okay, Paul was set apart. Here's something else I want to say to you. Those of you that have that have this call to ministry hanging on your on your life, under look at the context in which Paul and Barnabas. Now he was called Saul at that time, but it's the same guy. Barnabas and Saul were called. Look at the context. Where were they? They were in a local church. They were already in ministry there. They were in relationship there. And it was in prayer. They already knew, okay, it says, it says, set them apart to the work to which I have called them. Okay, so Saul and Barnabas knew already that they had been called to this ministry. He didn't say, set them apart to, and then say, you know, Ta-da, this is what you're called to. They knew already. The calling of God was already on their lives but they weren't stepping into it yet. And in the context of their local church, with godly people all around them, praying and fasting, the Holy Spirit speaks to the body and says, set them apart for the work to which I've called them. And they were already doing ministry. They were teaching. They were ministering there. They were involved. They were blooming where they had been planted. Okay, but they weren't stepping out. Okay, the call of God on your life is not just a personal thing. It is something that God speaks to you and then confirms by the body of of believers that surround you and that are people of prayer. That is why I am a licensed Assembly of God minister. Because I am not okay with just saying, well, God's called me, that's all I need to know, and just stepping off into whatever and just starting my quote-unquote ministry. It's not enough. That's not the biblical pattern. The biblical pattern is God speaks to you. You kind of carry that for a little bit. God's speaking to me. You begin to prepare yourself. You begin to involve yourself in ministry. You begin to do a work for the Lord in the midst of the body of Christ where he's planted you, and then that body recognizes there's an anointing and a calling on your life. And they say to you, we want to support you as you step from this place and go into the ministry that God's called you to. Do you see that? That's how the call works. I cannot tell you how many conversations I have had with young men and young women who have heard the call of God, God has spoken to them, I want you to go and do this ministry. And they have just said, okay, and they've just launched themselves off. They didn't talk to anybody about it. They didn't sit down with anyone. They didn't, they didn't bring men or women of wisdom and anointing and calling around them to say, hey, and to help them as they learn and grow and move. They didn't do that. They just jumped off. And then they, they begin asking for opportunities to do ministry where they have no they have they have no grounds from which to ask 
people would come to me all the time. Now, I'm not talking about my youth because I always wanted to give the youth in my youth ministry an opportunity to like preach or lead worship or whatever if they had that calling on their lives. Okay, I wanted to open up those doors for them to minister in a safe place. I'm talking about people who I don't know, who've done nothing, no ministry anywhere near me, okay, coming to me, calling me on the phone, etc., and saying, I would like to come and speak at your youth ministry. I'd like to come speak at your church. I don't know you. And I have had people complain to me. No one will let me speak at their church. Well, guess what, buddy? Maybe if you would sit still and actually begin to invest in a ministry somewhere, the people around you would recognize the anointing that's on your life and they would put you on a plate in a place and on a platform where from which you can do ministry. But don't go off and, you know, be so I'm called and tell everybody, "Hey, I'm called to do ministry." But you have no fruit in your life whatsoever because you're just telling, you're just mad that nobody's giving you a platform. That's not okay. That sense of, I have a right to speak. Nothing makes me more angry than that. A few years ago, I was at district council of the Indiana district. And there was this, I don't know how much you guys know about how our church polity works, how how decisions get made on a larger than the, the individual church level, like the Indiana district, et cetera. But once a year, the assembly of God pastors in the state of Indiana gather together and they, they make decisions. They vote on things. Okay. There is a group of what are called presbyters. Okay. Of that are elected from the body of believers or the body of, of, of ordained ministers. Okay. And those presbyters, they don't really make decisions, but they, they are the ones that hand out church discipline. Okay. And there was this push a couple years ago that someone under the age of 40 should be on the presbyter council all the time, just automatically that the, the, the council should have someone under the age of 40 on the council all the time. They also wanted a woman on the council all the time. Okay. I have a serious problem with that. Not because I don't want a woman on there and not because I don't want somebody under 40 on there. Cause I would, I think that's a great idea to have those voices there, but that they were standing and like stomping their foot and demanding to have a place that makes me mad because that's not what Paul and uh, Saul and Barnabas did. That's not, that's not how authority happens in the kingdom of heaven. Authority in the, heaven, authority in the kingdom of heaven comes from servitude. It comes from you serving someone, recognizing the authority and the anointing on your life, and putting you in a place of authority. That's where it comes from. And that's why I'm okay with the district voting. Because if someone, if there's a pastor in our midst who has ministered to the other pastors in our midst, and they know who he is... And they trust him enough to say, yes, I'll vote for him to be over me or her to be over me or that under 40 year old to be over me. If they've come risen to that place, not because of ambition, but because of their wholehearted servitude of the kingdom of heaven, then I am glad to see them put in a place of higher, whatever. It's not even higher authority. They don't make decisions. All they do is they have to sit and listen to the crap that people get themselves in. I don't want to be a presbyter. I have no desire to do that whatsoever. 
I, my dad was a presbyter for years, and I know how how he looked when he came home from those meetings. He was just destroyed because he's the one that had to sit there and look at somebody who's been ministering faithfully for 25 years, and they screwed up, and they ended up sleeping with someone that wasn't their uh, husband or wife, and they ha- and and now they're having to say, We're, we have to remove you from ministry. I don't want to do that. But because it's viewed as prestigious— we have these bratty little kids. There, I want to be on that. No, no, no. And I, I didn't do this, but I wanted to. I, I didn't. I should have. Now I wish I did. I wish I had grabbed the mic and said, "You bratty little punks! If you want to end up on that presbytery, you need to serve the rest of the the rest of the district and stop whining and complaining that you're not." I, 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 I. <laughs> I was close. <laughs> this was that district council was really hard. Yes. The verse that I, a verse that encapsulates this idea really well, that if I was going to write a verse on my wall, it, this is one of the verses that I would write on my wall. It's from, it's first Peter five, six. And it says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, he may exalt you. First Peter 5, 6. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, he may exalt you. The kingdom of heaven is not about ambitious people trying to make a career for themselves or push themselves into the limelight or give themselves a bigger platform or a bigger opportunity. The kingdom of heaven is about humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God and living in that place and being content. Saying, God, I'm going to work as hard as I can to do what you called me to do in this moment. And if you open the door for me to step to something else, awesome. But if not, this is where I want to live. Success in ministry is doing what God told you to do. I'm quoting David Delp on that one. Success in ministry is doing what God told you to do. It's not about, well, I have a church of 300 now, but if I work really hard, then I will, I'll quit this job and I'll go to a church of 1,000. Oh my gosh, that makes me so mad. God's going to have to drag me out of Fremont kicking and screaming. I'm telling you that right now. Yeah. Which what? Success in ministry is doing what God told you to do. Even if you fail. So Paul says, I'm a slave of Jesus Christ, set apart for the gospel of God. I love that phrase. The gospel of God. Oh, oh, I love that phrase because it's God's gospel. I don't think, we don't think about this enough. It's God's gospel. This whole thing was his idea. 
This is not God's emergency management plan. Okay, I think we think of that of it that way sometimes. Oh no, Adam and Eve just sinned. What am I gonna do? Don't you see God doing that kind of running around? Ah, 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 Eden didn't work. Why did I put that tree in the garden? Oh, I'm such an idiot. You know, I mean, do you see God being that way? No, that is not how it happened. This is God's plan A. It has always been God's plan A. This is God. And not only that, it is his plan. He came up with it. It was his idea. And it's all about him. It's the gospel of God. Let me explain. It was God's idea. Jonah 2.9. Okay. Says this. But I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. That which I, that which I have vowed I will pay for Salvation is from the Lord. Salvation is from the Lord. I know you guys going, I know, it's not that big a deal. Yes, it is. This is the biggest idea ever. God is the one who came up with the plan to save your dirty, rotten soul. It was his idea. Your sin was not his idea. But his salvation was his idea. And it wasn't that God was like, oh, you mean I have to save them now? Ugh. Forgiveness is God's idea. Grace is God's nature. This is who he is at the core of his being. He is a forgiver of sins. And we're going to spend some time in the book of Romans where you're going to find out that guess what? This whole thing of the fall of man and the salvation of man, the whole thing, your whole, your whole existence <laughs> is only, this is, this, oh man. God did this whole thing just to display to the universe that he's the forgiver of sins. <laughs> Think about that for long enough and your nose will bleed. But it's the truth. And Romans tells us that, that it's the truth. And we'll get there eventually where we'll have more time. But I just wanted to drop that truth bomb just real quick. Okay? God does everything he does to glorify himself. <laughs> and that's the most loving, amazing, wonderful, delicious thing God could have ever done. And I'm just going to leave that there. Forgiveness was his idea. The whole thing was his plan and his delight. Isaiah 53, 10. The Lord was pleased to crush him. The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. This is a prophecy of Jesus, about Jesus, the very son of God. And it says it was the good pleasure of God to crush him. Have you ever thought of God as being excited about forgiving you? At taking joy in giving you grace? There is more than one verse that says he delights in showing mercy. How often do we come to God, we've sinned again, right? 
And we're just like, sorry. And we kind of get this feeling like God is that parent that's like, well, I'm not going to send you to hell this time. But you better keep your nose clean, right? Doesn't that how we feel about God? Like, really, don't we think that God's mostly annoyed when he forgives? Be honest with yourself. When you screw up again, do you not feel like God's mostly annoyed? Like, he's just rolling his eyes again at, you are such an idiot. Oh, fine, whatever. I said I would forgive you, so I guess I will. (laughs) Isn't that how you feel about him, really? Come on, that's how I've, that I have been living in this reality that God delights to show mercy for a long time, and I still have to fight against that feeling of God doesn't really want to forgive me. God's annoyed that he has to forgive me. He doesn't really want to save me. He's not excited about saving me. He wishes he could save somebody else. Uh, that's all I get the dregs of humanity. Look at that Hawkins kid. Oh. <laughs> if only Justin Bieber would get saved. No! <laughs> At least I've still got Bono. Um, right? You know, God is, that's not how God is. It's God, listen, he loves. This is his plan. It was his idea. Salvation was his, it was his plan. It's his gospel. His He went to the end of the universe. He put himself on the cross. He suffered everything that he suffered. It says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. What was the joy set before him? There were two things. One, the glory of his heavenly father. And two, your presence with him forever. He saved you because he said, I love them and it's worth it. Are you, can you hear this? Because this is the truth. He loves to save. He loves to forgive. He enjoys showing mercy. It's his gospel. It was his idea. And he did all the work. (laughs) Oh, if there's one idea that I like, if there was one idea that I could like send off into the, the zeitgeist. Okay. And, and that means the spirit of the sage and, and, and get the church to like, honestly believe that at the molecular level, it's well, first would be, the love of God. I mean, the revelation of the love of God. But the second would be that the cross did all the work. You are not saved by what you have done. If you were, you'd be screwed. You are saved by what Jesus did. Romans 5.8 God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Before you thought about him, before you said, I should really get my life right with Jesus, before, before 
you ever even wanted anything of God, when you were still flipping your middle finger at him with every ounce of, of passion inside of you, when you were still running as hard as you could away from him, that's when he died for you. He didn't die for you in your best moment. He didn't die for you in your moment where you're on a stage doing ministry to thousands of people. He didn't die for you in the moment that you're most proud of. He died for you while you were still a sinner. When there was no hope, when you screwed up for the billionth time, when you said those words that you still are amazed came out of your mouth, that's when he died for you. He didn't die for you because you're such a good person. He died for you because you're garbage. I don't believe in self-esteem. I think self-esteem fights against the gospel with everything inside of me. All we are in this room, we are piles of meat. That is all we are. We are dirt with breath. That's all we are. We deserve nothing. None of you deserve anything. And that's why when we look at the fact that God loves us more than the rest of the universe, it should shock us, blow us away. We should spend our every minute of every day going, ah! because God loves us. Because he should not. He should not love us. There are no, we have no redeeming qualities in ourselves. Zero. And until you really understand that, the gospel will never be sweet. It will never be sweet. Only when you realize that you have nothing to give him will you understand that everything that he gives you I'm teaching on the Beatitudes in Fremont right now. And the very first one is, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs are the kingdom of heaven. Do you know what that means? It means really blissfully, deeply happy are the people that understand they bring nothing to this equation because God's going to give them everything. And if you try to hold your righteousness up before God, like, see, I'm a good person. You lose. The gospel says you have to repent of your evil and you have to repent of your righteousness. Throw it away. And take on the Lord's. God did all the work. Jesus on the cross said, it is finished. Done. Bill Paid. Ephesians 2, verses 4 through 10. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. There's what I was just talking about. God is showing you mercy so that the universe can see that he's a mercy giving God. He raised you up and sat you next to Jesus. <laughs> we're sitting at the right hand of God with Jesus. We're dirt bags and we're sitting at the right hand of God with Jesus right now. This isn't a future thing. He did this to us. When you got saved, you were seated at the right hand of God with Christ Jesus. Don't you ever pray like you're far away from God again because you're not. You are seated at the right hand of God with Jesus. 
You've got his ear. But it's not because of you. It's not because of you. For by grace you have been saved. Grace means for free. Unearned and unearnable. That's what grace means. Unearned and unearnable. You cannot work hard enough to receive it. You cannot pay enough to buy it. You do not deserve it, but it's given to you anyway. (laughs) By grace, you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Even the faith you have to believe in the gospel is a gift given to you by God. You don't even have the faith to believe. So God breathes a little bit of faith into you by his word. And all of a sudden you're like, I believe! And then salvation takes place. Not because of you, but because the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And it drops into the midst of your heart, the unperishable seed. And all of a sudden life begins to bubble. And then you say yes because of this borrowed faith that God gave you. That faith is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. That faith came from him. It wasn't yours. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. You didn't come to God, he came to you. You didn't save yourself. He saved you. You didn't believe in him. He put faith in you. You didn't save yourself. You were saved by his work. And now all the good things that you do, now that you are saved, God's actually doing them through you. None of this is yours. It's all his. It's all a gift. He gets the glory, but we get the joy. This is good news. It's God's gospel. It's his idea. He did all the work. He's still doing all the work. And number three, God is what we were saved for. The only reason that the gospel is good news is because it means that we get God. I've never heard anybody say it better than John Piper. He said, if I get to heaven and all it is is eternal golf and seeing my Aunt, Su- my Aunt Susie, I will be deeply disappointed. I have been saved to enjoy God forever. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Jesus said, this is eternal life, to know God and the Jesus, the one he has sent. That's what it means. And when he says eternal life, every time Jesus says eternal life, he's saying eternally long and eternally good. It only gets better forever and ever. That's salvation. That's the gospel. It only gets better forever and ever. Somebody needs to write a song about that. God is what we were saved for. What makes the good news good is that we get God forever. He's our portion. He's our inheritance. Sin took us from God. Jesus gives us back to God. And we're his. We're going to stop there.
So we got through the first verse. I tried. I mean, I have notes for the first five, but it's 1054. Are there any questions, comments, queries? Don't worry, I'll be back next week. <laughs> Question, why didn't you get the air piercing that you said you were going to get? Uh, uh, you said it was your idea. It was when I was a kid, but now I see guys that have earrings like that, and I'm like, you're, you're, you're gross. <laughs> you're gross. <laughs> and now I'm a senior pastor, right? I can't. I can't get any more tattoos. I can't get any ear piercings. You know. I have one. <laughs> what? I suppose I could, but I'm not going to. The thing is, see, I, my life is not my own. Okay, and and if some of my congregation knew I even had one tattoo, they would probably not be very happy about it. Really? Well, yeah. There's a lot of Christians that still have a real issue with that. Yeah. Okay. And I'm a grown up. So getting another tattoo is going to, to a lot of people, is going to seem silly and ridiculous. I don't really, I mean, I might get another tattoo, but it's not going to be anywhere that I'm going to display anything. Right? I'm not going to get like a neck tattoo. I mean, that's not going to happen. I see about getting like a dragon claw right there. <laughs> <laughs> But it's bolt. just like, yeah, it's. Yeah. <laughs> I want a lightning bolt right here. <laughs> <laughs> and then I'm going to start wearing glasses that are. We'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. How fast will I get excommunicated? <laughs> oh. My first sermon at my new church actually quoted Talladega Nights. Yes. <laughs> and uh, I, I, la- later on, I was like, no, it was like, I, I said, don't put that evil on me, Ricky Bobby. Don't you put that evil on me. Don't you put that evil on me. And there was like, you know, the younger, my, my, my congregation, we got about 150 people on a Sunday morning. And on the, the, when I'm looking at them, the left-hand side is almost all younger people. And the right-hand side is almost all older people. And so when I, when I make reference to like, Talladega Nights or some kind of cultural reference. This half of the room totally gets it and laughs. This half of the room just stares at me blankly. <laughs> and uh, so <laughs> it's fun. But one of these days I'm going to be like, okay, ready? Now everybody mix yourselves around. You know, old people, you have to come over here. Young people, you have to. Like, we're, we're, you old person. <laughs> You know, I probably would use nicer words than that. <laughs> hey, you old farts and old bags, I want you to go over there. I want you to sit with the whippersnappers and the... That means you two wrinkles. <laughs> hey, liver spots, move. <laughs> hey, you with the tube. <laughs>